encourage you to open your Bibles this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 7. The name of our church is Faith Bible Church, and one of the reasons is that the Bible is uh, central to what we do here. It's important for us to study it. And um, so this morning, as we work through the book of 2 Samuel, we are in the 7th chapter. This is one of the most important chapters in your Bible. I figured out in the first hour it would take me at least an hour and a half to unpack just some of the gems of this. So we are going to do our best to touch on some of the gems of Second Samuel 7 this morning. We saw in chapters 5 and 6 that David has ascended to the throne over all of Israel, a unified Israel, in a new capital, Jerusalem. And chapters 5 and 6 are the very beginning seeds of seeing a Davidic king seated on a Davidic throne in a place where God is understood by Israel to be dwelling. Because David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And God told the people of Israel that he would dwell in their midst as he was enthroned above the Ark of the Covenant, between the cherubim, those golden figures over the seat, of the, or over the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. So we find in chapters 5 and 6, David enthroned on a throne over all Israel with God dwelling in the midst of the people, which brings us to chapter 7. Why is chapter 7 so important? Well, in chapter 7, we find a launching pad for Israel's expectation of a Messiah. In chapter 7, we find one of the main reasons why Israel's Messiah is understood to be the Son of God. In chapter 7, we find one of the reasons why Jesus is understood to be the Messiah, God's Son. In chapter 7, we find one of the main reasons why we look forward to a kingdom on earth where Jesus will reign, that kingdom where we will spend eternity. And today, as we read chapter 7, we are reading 3,000-year-old material that has bearing on your life and my life. And one of my hopes, as we look at this chapter together, is that we will find a renewed encouragement and strength in the fact that this is God's Word, that 3,000-year-old material has been true, is true, and is yet to come to its complete fulfillment. And we will see the thread of this chapter going all through Scripture. So let's read it together. I'll read from my copy of the text. You can follow along in yours. Second Samuel chapter 7, starting the reading of verse 1. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See how I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within ten curtains? 
Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your mind, for the Lord's with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I've been moving in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I've gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you. Wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over all my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I'll correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, with all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. 3,000 years old, these words of Nathan the prophet from God the Father to David. And yet, they are vital to us today. I've been married for over 31 years, and in those 31 years, I've learned a few things, some very practical. For example, uh, my wife and I were at a wedding reception last night, and like always, I spilled. I'm a terrible spiller. I, Ever since day one, since third, I'm always spilling on myself. And one thing I've learned is don't try to fix it. Just tell Barbara. Just tell Barb, I spilled. And she says, yes, I know. And then she takes care of it. When I try to fix it, I mess it up and I just seat the stain. But nope, she's a master at stain removal. Second thing I learned is don't pull loose threads. I learned that one the hard way. I've ruined many a good tie. You know, it's just it's just a little thread right there. You think you could just pull it out. And it's amazing that thread goes all the way up through your tie. So two important things. Don't try to fix your own stains and don't pull loose threads. Learn that. Maybe a couple of other things. You know, the Bible contains threads that run all the way through. 
And they are threads that actually encourage us because they remind us that even though this book is a collection of writings by 40 different human authors over a period of 1,600 years, they are all interconnected. Why? Because, as Second Peter 1 tells us, they're not just written by the acts of humans. They are rather those who wrote were bore along by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God directed them what to write so that the words that we have in this book are cohesive. They tell a unified story of God's redemption of who God is in the work that he's doing. And this chapter is key in us understanding what God is doing then and what he's doing today. So we come with expectancy to Second Samuel chapter 7 as we see once again one of these major threads running through scripture. As the chapter opens, we find David wanting to do something big for God. Something big. He looks at how God has blessed him. Remember, he was a shepherd boy, working for his dad, taking care of sheep. I've never been around sheep much, but what I have, it tells me that was not a good job. So he went from being a shepherd boy, working for his dad, and if you've ever worked for your dad, probably didn't get the best pay. And so, working for his dad, and he ends up being the king over a unified Israel. Secondly, we know from chapter 5, verse 11, that this guy named Hiram, this king of Tyre, sent all these wonderful materials and craftsmen to David, and now David has a new palace. I mean, it's made of cedar. If it's anything like the cedar that we're aware of, just think how gorgeous that inlaid wood would have been in David's house in the aromas of walking the corridors of that gorgeous palace. And David looks around and thinks, I am in this palatial house of splendor, and yet God has to live in a tent. Remember, in Israel's mind, God dwelled above the Ark of the Covenant, that box that held the tablets of stone and Aaron's rod and the vial of manna. And God said he'd be, in some sense, present with Israel as he was enthroned above that box. And David said, here, God's living in a tent, and I'm living in this palace. Look what he's done for me. And of a pure heart, David says, I want to do something big for God. So I want to build him a house. He goes to Nathan the prophet, our introduction to Nathan here. It says to him in verse 2, Ah, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan responds, go. Do all that's in your mind, for the Lord is with you. David wants to do something big for God, but God says no. As we look at verses 4 through 7, God says no. He, he speaks to Nathan the prophet during the night and communicates to Nathan, you've got to give David a word. So in verse 6, God 
communicates through Nathan, hey, I've been living in this tent since the Exodus. What's changed? In verse 7, God communicates through Nathan, did I command you to build me a permanent house? And then in verse 5, God says, David, you're not the right man for the job. One of my professors at Dallas Seminary, Tom Constable, wrote these words. He was to be a ruler, not a temple builder. If you look over in the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 22, verse, starting to read in verse 8, we see more reason here, because God says, you've been a man of bloodshed, you've been a man of war, you are ceremonially impure. Look at verse 8. The word of the Lord came to me saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. And listen to this, it's going to be important later. He shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So God says no to David. I didn't tell you to build a permanent house. I've been living in this tent. What's changed? And you're not the right man for the job. When I was in college, I worked in this warehouse, downtown Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, six stories high. And we had a man there that worked with me named John. And uh, John was sad all the time. Because John, at one point in his life, felt like God was calling him to be a missionary. To go overseas and tell people about Jesus. He was a Christian. And while he set out early in life to do that, He was never able to. Things just kept coming apart in his life. Doors kept closing. And even though John wanted to do this, what he thought was a big thing for God, God said no. John was sad all the time. He felt like God was upset with him. That he let God down. We're going to see next week that when God said no to David, David still rejoiced in the Lord because he knew that God simply was saying, that's not where I want you. You see, each and every one of us have a calling from God where he wants us to serve him. And sometimes we want to do something big for God over here, and God says, nope, that's not where you're supposed to be right now. I want you to be a light for me, reflecting me in the workplace here. God said no. Even though David wanted to do something big for him, David said, I want to build you a house. Well, as we come to verses 4 and following... David says to God, I want to build you a house. Guess what God says to David? Nope, I'm going to build you a house. That's what God says. David wanted to build a house for God, and God says, nope, I'm going to build a house for you. And as we come to verses 4 through 17, we find that while David wanted to do something great for God, God does a great thing for David. He does a great thing not only for David, but for all believers. 
because he promises that a son of David will reign on David's throne forever. Now that is an important promise, that a son of David will reign on David's throne forever over a kingdom. That's a thread. And we're going to see a glimpse of how that thread goes all the way back to the beginning of your Bible and it goes all the way through to the end. This promise of God. We call these verses the Davidic covenant. We don't use the word covenant very much anymore, except if you buy a house, you may want to ask your realtor, are there covenants? We're familiar with that term as it relates to real estate. Are there restrictive covenants? Are there, is there this document that all the people who live in the subdivision got together and said, we will do this and we won't do this? My neighborhood used to have covenants and they decided we don't want covenants anymore. We didn't renew them. So now, if I want to put my car up on blocks and take all the wheels off and let it sit out, I can. Not planning on it, but I could. Well, see, God here makes a covenant. It's like a binding agreement. He says, I'm going to do this. And to remember, when God says he does something, he's going to do something, he's going to do it. God always does what he says he will do. And so here, even though David wanted to do something big for God, God says, I'm going to do something big for you. I'm going to build you a house. Now, as we go through these verses, we see these promises that God makes to David that ultimately weave all the way, like a unified thread all through our Bible. And as we look at that, it reminds us, this just isn't any ordinary book. This is God's book that he has written to us. We find... God encouraging David in verses 8 and 9. He says in verse 9, I have been with you. Up in verse 15, he says, My loving kindness shall not depart from him. He's just going to be talking about how David is going to have descendant after descendant after descendant. God's loving kindness will never depart. That's a covenant word. It's a very special Hebrew word, That's pronounced chesed. It's talking about God's loyal love. That that God is always faithful in his love for those who are his people. these, These recipients of the covenant. He's always committed to them. He's never going to abandon them. His loyal love will always be there. And while the word covenant doesn't appear here... In 2 Samuel 7, we're not, we don't have time to look there today, but Psalm 89 is David writing about this covenant, and in the first four verses, he says that this is a covenant that God has made with him. So God says, I'm with you, David. I will always be loyal in my love to you. And he says in verse 9, he's going to make a great name for him. And then he starts having fun with this word house. Over 15 times in this section, it refers to a house. Now remember, David wanted to build a house for God, a temple. And up in verse 13, 
God's going to say, your son is going to build a house for me. Literally a, a physical temple. But that's not the only way the word house is used. God has some fun here. And he tells David, you want to build a house for me? I'm going to build a house for you. But it's not a physical house. Rather, it is going to be a dynasty. Look at verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. You see, this covenant, this Davidic covenant, these promises that God makes to David, promise a dynasty, a series of sons, a kingdom forever, and a throne forever. Sometimes these sons of David won't be what they what God has designed for them. For example, in verse 13 it says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I'll correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. If you look in the New Living Translation, it says, I will correct and discipline him with a rod like any father would do. So what God is saying there is some of David's sons won't honor the Lord like they're supposed to, and God's going to discipline them. But, remember verse 15, His loving kindness is never going to leave. He's always going to be loyal to them. What's interesting here is that God tells David that these descendants of his, he'd be their father and they'd be his sons. Look at verse 14. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. From this chapter forward, Israel starts equating the kings of Judah, these descendants eventually of David, as being the son of God. If you remember back into the passage I read in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, what did that passage, how did that passage refer to Solomon? It says, he shall build a house for my name, he shall be my son, and I will be his father, I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. You see, Solomon was thought to be a son of God. So Israel started uh, started equating their king as God's son. But what would happen is their king would fail. And so Israel started looking for that son of David who would fulfill these verses, who would sit on a throne forever and ever, who would reign over this kingdom. The prophets, Pastor Brian has been teaching a Sunday school class looking at these threads of the Old Testament. The prophets, after this era, from after 1,000 up to 400, start writing about looking for this son of David. For example, in Isaiah chapter 11, 
verse 1, we read about looking for this perfect son of David. And this is what it says. A shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor. He'll decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked all, so righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness a belt about his waist. And it keeps going on describing this perfect son of David that God promises here in 2 Samuel 7, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 is another illustration of a prophet looking for this son of God, this descendant of David, this king. Well, once we get to about 400 years before Jesus, the Old Testament scriptures come to a close and Bible teachers call this 400-year period of time between the end of the writing of the Old Testament and Jesus coming as the intertestamental period. During those 400 years, Israel's leaders, in studying all of these scrolls of the Scripture, started refining and thinking about all of these promises to a point that when Jesus is on earth, it's common knowledge that this son of David, this son of God would come. And by this time, they're calling him Messiah, the anointed one. I wanted to do a big thing for God one time. When I was finishing up my master's degree, I wanted to go get a doctorate, and I wanted to write my dissertation on the development of the concept of Messiah during the intertestamental period. I still am waiting for someone to do it. I'm not smart enough to do it, but it needs to be done, but it would, it would involve reading all of this material that's not part of scripture, but Based on scripture. So when we get to the New Testament, everyone is looking for this son of God, the son of David, that 2 Samuel 7 talks about. So much so that as God caps off this promise in verse 16, it says, your house, not a physical building, this lineage of kings, This dynasty, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. My oldest son bought a house this week. He and his wife and our little granddaughter were living in a condominium. They sold that and bought a house. And it's a nice house. I'm so excited for my kids. One of my favorite parts of the house would seem rather obscure to the vast majority of the population. But I just love it. The garage, it's got a nice big wide garage over here. And then the main part of the house is here. And there is an enclosed walkway between the two. Almost like a mudroom. 
Oh, I love mudrooms. Mudrooms are great, especially for guys like me. So you could go out and maybe you could shoot the biggest buck you've ever shot and you'd have blood all over your coveralls and you're muddy and you smell. I've, there's something else I learned. You're not supposed to go in the kitchen that way. Just a little tidbit of advice. So you come and you get in the garage and garage, you can step into the mudroom and pegs, big, heavy pegs along there. And you can take those coveralls that would maybe normally weigh about 7 pounds and now they weigh 22 pounds because they're covered with blood and guts. And you just hang them on a peg and they can dry and later they can be laundered. Or you've got wet gloves or you've got three or four kids and they all come in and they've got all this wet stuff and it seems like you're just in perpetual wet you just hang it on a peg, hang it on a peg. Pegs are great. They're so much better than hangers. You know, they're just sturdy. They're there. We have to have pegs. You know what's good in our faith? Is to have pegs. Pegs that we hang our faith on. You know what one of the biggest pegs for me is in my faith? One of those those things that I always come back to that remind me that Christianity is a reliable system of faith there, that, that, that it makes sense to believe in Jesus Christ. One of my pegs is this book. When I look at a passage like 2 Samuel 7 that occurs a thousand BC, a thousand years before Jesus, and then Jesus comes and we see at least part of this fulfilled in him, and then we look at his promises and we realize that the rest of it is going to be fulfilled still coming. It's just like a big peg in my faith because it reminds me this book just isn't an ordinary book. It all ties together. It's just not a loose collection of writings by 40 different people. It's unified. The Spirit of God did bear these authors along. Let's get a little glimpse of it. You go back to the book of Genesis. We don't have time to turn there this morning. But Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 22. And in Genesis chapter 12, God says to this guy, Abram, Abram, I want you to obey me. I want you to leave your father's house and go to the land where I'll show you. Abraham does it. And God says, I'm going to give you innumerable descendants. I'm going to give you so many descendants, they're going to be more vast than the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. Rulers are going to come from you. In Genesis 15, he says, and you're going to have a land that's going to go from the brook of Egypt to the Euphrates, which Israel still to this day has never controlled all of that, but they will. And then in Genesis chapter 49, God promises to Judah that kings would come from him. You know who came from Judah? David. And then we come to 2 Samuel 7. And just as God had told Abraham, all the nations of the earth are going to find blessing through you, Abraham, 
Then we see a son of Abraham, David, is promised that kings will come from him. In fact, his sons will be considered sons of God. And Israel is looking for that one who will reign over this throne forever and hasn't come, hasn't come, hasn't come. And then Israel starts saying, when will the anointed one come? Remember, the anointed one is the Hebrew word Messiah, Greek word Christos or Christ. When will the Christ come? When will the Messiah come? Now, let's look at the beginning of the New Testament and see how the New Testament authors show that Jesus is this ideal son of David talked about in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We come to Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, it tells us this. As Jesus is baptized, it says, Behold, a voice out of the heavens said, What's it say? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You see, you don't, we can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. Part of what's being said here is that God is saying, This is Him! This is my Son! The one that's talked about in 2 Samuel 7. This is the son of David who will reign over my kingdom forever and ever on David's throne. So when God spoke from heaven and said, this is my son, he's saying much more than that he's just the second person in the Trinity. He's saying, this is the Messiah, the anointed one that I promised Clear back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The author of the book of Hebrews. If you want to just boil down what the book of Hebrews is about, the author of Hebrews is basically trying to say, Jesus is the best. He's supreme. Jesus is better than the Old Testament priests. He's even better, he's even over the angels. And in the first few verses of the book of Hebrews, in verse 5, it says, For which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, quoting from Psalm 2. And then look at the next part, and again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Where does that come from? Second Samuel 7. Right back up here in verse 5. 14. You see, the author of Hebrews understands that Jesus is this perfect son of David who's promised to sit on David's throne forever and ever. That's why Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 4. And what is Jesus' message? Matthew 4 verse 17, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why does Jesus keep talking about the kingdom? Because he's the king? He is this ideal son of David. Promised clear back here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Look at Luke chapter 1 verses 30 through 33. Luke chapter 1, 30 through 33.
I'll find it. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. You remember that uh, God had promised David that he would have a great name through his descendants? And he will be called the Son of the Most High. He's going to be called the Son of God. And the Lord God will do what? Will give him the throne of his father David. You see, Jesus Christ coming begins to fulfill these promises that were made a thousand years before Jesus comes. Then we go and, 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 and we look at a passage like Matthew chapter 25, looking about Jesus' future coming. And in verse 31 it says, When the Son of Man comes, talking about His second coming back to earth, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne all the nations will be gathered before him. You see, God, as we've been talking about, is all about demonstrating that he has the right to rule. He set up his kingdom in Eden. Satan tempted Adam and Eve to sin, and they fell. So Satan now has this counterfeit kingdom, but God is going to show that his kingdom is supreme. And ever since then, God has been in the process of redeeming his creation. He's bringing us back to that point where his creation started, where he will have a kingdom on earth with Jesus Christ reigning over it. A kingdom of peace. A kingdom that is promised in 2 Samuel 7. And by the way, if God has done everything so far according to 2 Samuel 7, he's provided that ideal son of David, he's going to finish what he said in 2 Samuel 7. That kingdom where we will live is still coming. We're going to talk in our community groups tonight about the fact that even though Jesus has not set up his physical reign on earth here yet, we are still kingdom people. That God still wants us to yield to him, to Jesus Christ as our king. And we are going to talk about the four realms that God demonstrates his right to rule in government, in the home, in the workplace, that God wants you to reflect Jesus Christ through your work and through our home, our workplace, and through our church, that we reflect Him as the body of Christ, the church universal. You see, Second Samuel 7 is one of those pegs. And as we look at it, we are reminded, hey, this book is special. This book records for us God's word. It's already started to be fulfilled, and it's going to finish. And God 
is king. Jesus Christ is king. One day he will reign on David's throne forever. Right now, since I've put my faith in him, he's my king today. And I'm to be reflecting that. Every, just not on Sunday, but every day of my life. We'll talk about that tonight in community groups. You may be here today, and you don't know really how you stand with Jesus Christ. You don't know if, if Jesus Christ is your king or not. You don't know if you're right with God or not. I would encourage you, before you leave today, just to stop back to our prayer room, which is directly behind you. One of our elders will be back there, and he's got some material. He, he don't even hold you up if you don't want to. He's got some material that he can just hand to you, and you can take out a copy of, of the Bible, your copy, look up verses that talk to you about who Jesus is, what he's done for you, and how through faith in him you can be right with God. Or you may be here today, and you are going through some tunnels, just some tough times in your life, and, and you just need to pray. You need a brother or sister to come alongside of you and just be reminded that he is reigning, that he is sovereign. I encourage you to just go back and spend a little time praying in our prayer room. Father, we thank you for Second Samuel 7. We thank you for the hope that it gives us. It's, it's like a peg in our faith that this old material comes to fruition, that, that these promises are sure that you are a God who always do, does what you say you will do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.